0: up with a lot of gear this morning which means this should be a lot of fun where we're going um, portion of my library you could say my name's Jamie I'm one of the pastors i um, glad to have you guys here uh, hard to follow Jason's stand-up comedic act from earlier but I'll try my best um, if, you're, if you're new here, um, glad that you've connected with us, um, you've come at a great time. In fact, next week uh, we will be celebrating our fourth birthday, share more with you about that um, toward the end of the service, uh, but we will also be launching uh, a new series through the book of Philippians next week, so great time uh, to connect and, and explore where we're going as a church. Uh, right now, uh, this morning, we close out a series that we've been working through for the past few weeks a series entitled The Everyday Gospel. Uh, Many of you have been around for much of that. If you haven't, um, but you're in our database, my hope is that as you have received those weekly emails with links to the sermon podcast that you've uh, been keeping up with where we're going throughout the course of this series, it is uh, some semblance of a train of thought from start to finish. And so um, I'll attempt to recap that a little bit this morning, but I do think it would be uh, helpful for you to go back and Uh, to listen to each of the messages of this series and kind of track in its fullness with, with where we're going. What we've essentially been doing for three weeks is working our way through a systematic framework of thinking about the gospel. Uh, week one was all about the present tense implications of the gospel. My aim was to argue that the gospel is not simply the entry ramp onto the highway of Christianity to be abandoned for bigger and better things once we're in the fast lane, once we're converted. Rather, according to the P- apostle Paul, uh, the gospel is meant to have a strengthening effect on the Christian. Romans sixteen twenty five. we talked about this in the first week. Paul says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel... In the preaching of Jesus Christ, that word strengthened carries with it this idea of being firmly established, uh, solidly planted. Like a tree that, that's, whose roots run deeper and deeper into the ground over the course of time so that we're not swayed to and fro by anything and everything that comes our way. The gospel is meant to have that kind of impact on your life if you're a Christian. The Apostle Paul knew that the the propensity of the human heart is to wander off the gospel path. He knew that because our hearts are fickle, we need to be reminded of the gospel often. Week two was about unearthing where that proneness to wander actually comes from. And so we talked in great detail about the flesh, the devil, and the world. We talked about the fact that each of us has a unique sin nature. The struggle with sin, with doubt, with unbelief is different for each and every one of us. And because the struggle within comes in a variety of shapes and sizes, if we're going to be strengthened by the gospel, if we're going to be firmly established, solidly planted, deeply rooted, we've got to be willing to look in the mirror long enough to understand what that propensity to wander looks like within each of us. And then there's the devil himself. It's not just you and I that function as enemies of our own joy. Rather, uh, the devil and his minions are on an unrelenting mission to keep the roots of the gospel from going deeper in our lives. Whispering things in our ears all the time that are antagonistic to the gospel. And then let's not forget about the world. The trends of culture and society that present us with opportunities to veer off the gospel path all the time. The things that you and I come face to face with simply as a result of the world, the day and age in which we live. Movies, songs, TV shows, social media posts, commercials, products, services, experiences in life, all telling a story, presenting a narrative of sorts. Now you take all three of these things, the flesh, the devil, and the world, and you really can mix those three into a, a number of unique anti-gospel cocktails. If we had ended the series there in week two, we'd all be super devastated, So thanks be to God for last week, week three, where we talked about hope. It was about connecting the dots, um, so to speak, in a way that shows that the gospel offers hope in the midst of all of our unique battles with sin, all of our unique battles with unbelief, with with doubt, with spiritual warfare, etc. And so my hope is that you walked away from last week's gathering seeing the gospel for the multifaceted jewel that it really is, that you saw the gospel shine with new, new brilliance, new beauty, new radiance. And believe me when I say that we barely scratched the surface last week regarding all the ways that the gospel is meant to shine in our lives. The Christian life is about growing in the gospel until the day we die. It's a a never-ending, lifelong homework assignment. And so now, in light of all that we talked about for three weeks, let me say something that, that might sound a bit puzzling to some, maybe even disturbing, which is this. If you walk away with an embracing of everything that we've talked about in this series thus far, but fail to embrace and put into practice that which we will talk about this morning, you will have missed the entire point of this whole series. All right, with that being said, if you have a Bible, open up to Lamentations chapter 3. It's where we'll be this morning. I know you all woke up expecting us to be in this particular book of the Bible as you showed up to gather with the church this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you nearby. You can grab that Bible and open up to this morning's passage. If you need a little help, look for the book of Isaiah, the book of Jeremiah. Just past those two thick books in the Old Testament, you should find the book of Lamentations. Or if you are with us for the Daniel series and your Bible is a little worn there, uh, you can go back just a couple of uh, books of the Bible prior to Daniel and you should find the book of Lamentations as well. don't own a Bible or you have a translation that's hard to understand, take that Bible uh, from under the seat in front of you as the church's gift to you. Let me read this morning's passage and and we'll dive in and we'll get to work and make some sense as to why we are in this particular book of the Bible to close out this series. The author of Lamentations chapter 3 beginning in verse 17 says this, My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Let me pray. God, I pray that as a result of our time in the scriptures this morning, particularly Lamentations chapter 3, that we would walk away from this building this morning with a less compartmentalized Christianity, uh, with a Christianity that has some lifeblood in it, Um, that we walk away actually breathing in the, the air of the gospel more rhythmically, in our lives, that we begin to see more and more how this was never intended to be uh, this this experience of the beauty of the gospel one or two times a week um, as we gather in small groups and as we gather on Sunday mornings only to be left to the curb, to the side uh, for the remainder of our lives. Rather, the gospel is meant to, to have a uh, lasting impact on our lives day in and day out in the, in the everyday rhythms. Um, so would you... Would you help us to see that? Would you help us to embrace that? Would you help us in the week to come, in the, in the following weeks and months and years, to be a church that, that lives this out so that as people look in on this particular family, this particular expression of your bride, that they would say, there's a people who, who are living and breathing uh, the, the gospel in the midst of the everyday. They, they are living a Christianity that actually matters to them moment by moment. And I long for that, and I hunger for that. God, would you do that in us by the power of your spirit? Father, we ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So the book of Lamentations, for those who have never done a, a deep, detailed study of this particular book of the Bible, which I'm guessing is may, would be many in this room, it's written by an eyewitness uh, who survived the terrifying experience of the destruction of Jerusalem in 587 B.C. The ransacking of the temple, the scattering of the priests, uh, the death and starvation of many of God's people, the exile of many of God's people to Babylon, which we talked about in the Daniel series. And so uh, you, you have a man who's seen all of this, and he authors this particular book of the Bible. And so as a result, what you get is a raw, honest depiction of human emotion when you read the book of Lamentations. In fact, um, at the risk of going all-out nerd on you guys, uh, the book of Lamentations forms an acrostic, meaning that the first letter of each stanza is a sequential letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, here's why that nerdy little fact matters. I'm not sharing that with you so that you think, oh, he knows things about the Bible. Many scholars agree that this is a poetic way of, of the writer of the book of Lamentations expressing his feelings from A to Z. And so in this book of the Bible, you get the full range, the A to Z of raw human emotion. You get the good, the bad, and the ugly. There's some real ugly cries in the book of Lamentations. And so if you read this book from start to finish, you begin to see that there's not a strong systematic train of thought here. Like most of us, when we go through difficult things, the author bounces back and forth between hope and despair, between trust and doubt, between anger and comfort. Back and forth he goes. Sound familiar? We're meant to see in the book of Lamentations an example of the way the human heart typically works. Our hearts are like pinballs, right? They bounce back and forth between one emotion and the next, moment by moment. It's part of the reason why the book's authorship is anonymous. So that you and I can more readily identify with it, so that we would declare with the author of Lamentations, chapter 3, verse 1, I am the man who has seen affliction. And so I can think of no better book of the Bible to go to with respect to putting a bow on this entire series. How are we meant to respond in the midst of the battle? What does it look like to wield the weapon of gospel truth in the midst of our own unique struggles with sin? Our own unique struggles with doubt. Our own unique struggles with spiritual warfare and suffering and unbelief and on and on we could go. The author of Lamentations clearly finds himself in the the midst of soul war. Listen to the language of verses 17 and 18. It says this, My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. I've lost all peace. I can't remember what happiness feels like. I've lost all sense of hope. This idea of staying staying strong in the moment sounds crazy to me. Anybody ever felt that way? Hopeless, unhappy, anxiety-ridden. I've felt that way in the last seven days, just to be honest with you. This is not some trivial, inconsequential moment in this man's life. This is not something shallow. This is a window into a moment of real struggle. Which, by the way, God's big enough to handle statements like what you find in verses 17 and 18. You know that, right? Going back to a couple of weeks ago. It's an honest declaration of where this man's heart is in this moment. Verse 19. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall, My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. He asked God to remember all that he's suffered. The bitterness of his experience represented by the wormwood and the gall. His soul is in a state of having sunken down. If chapter 3 ended there, similar to if we had ended the series in week 2, it would be incredibly devastating. But when you get to verse 21, something happens. This shift takes place. He says this in verse 21, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Right in the midst of a a real struggle, right in the midst of all hope feeling lost, notice what happens. But this I call to mind. Literally, this I cause to return to my heart, to the deep recesses of my being. If I'm going to have any hope of having hope, my heart's got to rest in something hope-worthy in this moment. What is that something? Something. For the author of Lamentations, what is it that in this moment this man's heart needs to rest in? Verse 22 tells us, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Let me ask you a question. Where might the man responsible for authoring Lamentations chapter 3 have come up with with such a phrase, with, with such ideas? In this moment of real struggle, is he just dreaming things up that he, he hopes are true? Is he just grabbing the next book out of the self-help se- section of the local Barnes & Noble? Where is he getting this from? Interestingly, these words found in verses 22 and 23 sound strangely like those found in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, which says this. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This idea of who God is in this moment for this man, it's not the product of human speculation, but rather divine revelation. How does this man know that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases? Answer, the Bible tells him so. How does this man know that God's mercies never come to an end? That God's mercies are new every morning? Answer, the Bible tells him so. How does this man know that God's faithfulness is great? Answer, the Bible tells him so. What you have here in Lamentations chapter 3 is a wielding of truth in the midst of the battle to believe in that moment of soul war taking place in this man's life. We've talked about this before. Make no mistake, the Christian life is war. Thankfully, God hasn't left us without the proper weaponry for a battle for a life lived in the trenches, you might say. He's given us a sword, and not just any sword, a sword capable of piercing the human soul. That's what I call a blade, right? The B-I-B-L-E That's what we're talking about. In his letter to the church in Ephesus, the apostle Paul refers to the Bible as the sword of the spirit, not only meant to be wielded against the fickle human heart, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, but also against the spiritual forces of evil. The devil himself, the accuser, and his army of darkness... It, I love this story. We talked about it before. One of the most fascinating stories to me in all of the Bible is that of the temptation of Jesus. It's a really crazy story. Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit to a showdown with the devil of hell. That's crazy. Satan does what he always does, which is to call both God's word and Jesus' identity into question. It's the same thing he does with each of us. He just repackages it in a way that's form-fitted for each of our individual doubts and fears. Satan even goes so far as to quote scripture to Jesus. Yes, you heard me rightly. The devil himself is skilled at scripture memory. He's the consummate VBS Bible drill big leaguer, you could say. In a battle of wits with Jesus, the devil quotes Psalm 91, taking it out of context in an effort to try to destroy Jesus. What does Jesus do as he finds himself in the octagon with the devouring line of hell? Answer? The same exact thing that the author of Lamentations does. He wields the blade of truth. Three times Jesus declares God's word in the face of the enemy. Three times Jesus goes to the book of Deuteronomy in the midst of the battle. When was the last time you you thought about leaving the house needing Deuteronomy in your arsenal so that you could fight the good fight of faith? Or the book of Lamentations for that matter. God's word is our arsenal. Going back to last week, to the fearful. How do I know that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Answer, the Bible tells me so. To those feeling powerless, how do I know that sin will have no dominion over you as a Christian? Answer, the Bible tells me so. Romans 6. To those who feel like the devil is winning, how do I know that the death blow has been delivered to the dragon Satan himself? Answer, the Bible tells me so, Colossians 2. To those struggling with guilt, how do I know that your guilty record has been nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ? Answer, the Bible tells me so, again Colossians 2. As a a church planter and pastor, I have two great concerns that keep me up at night. There are a lot of things that keep me up at night, but I'm just giving you a couple as it pertains to church planting and pastoring. The first is is the issue of biblical and theological illiteracy. If the Bible is our God-given weapon in the midst of soul war, in the midst of the fight to believe, how terrifying to think of the multitudes who are walking through life with the sword resting in its sheath, collecting dust. Let me ask you this. If Jesus needed the Bible, what makes us think that we don't? We must know our weapon. Without divine revelation, we're left with nothing more than human speculation in moments of weakness, in moments of doubt, in moments of fear. We must grow in biblical literacy. We must immerse ourselves in the scriptures if we have any hope of fighting the good fight of faith. That's what the first three weeks of this series were all about, unearthing our deep need for the multifaceted jewel of the gospel and then allowing that multifaceted jewel to shine in all of its glory. Allowing all of those doctrines of the cross uh, to shine in all their splendor. We must be students of the word. We must be a people who are arming ourselves. Who are adding to our arsenal so that we can fight in those moments of real battle. Of real soul war like we find the author of Lamentations in chapter 3. And all the Bible junkies said, amen brother. Which leads me to my second concern. And it pertains to all the Bible junkies, myself included. It's possible to grow in biblical literacy and yet never wield your weapon in moments of weakness. In moments of temptation, in moments of doubt, and on and on we could go. On to the next book study, on to the next theological forum, on to the next podcast. Yet never aiming the truth that you've gleaned from those things at your heart in those moments of soul war a theological tick ready to pop at any moment, a biblical bobblehead, if you will. Let me say it this way. I've said this before. It's not what I don't know about the Bible that scares me. It's what I do know that never gets applied. Coming back to that old Charles Spurgeon quote, a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. Well, maybe. But that's assuming that the person who owns that dilapidated Bible is actually wielding the truth therein this bible right here it looks pretty dilapidated i'll be honest with you i like to use this one rather than others because it looks dilapidated makes me look like a better church leader doesn't mean that i'm preaching the gospel to myself at all for many of us let me say it this way the last thing many of us need is the next bible study Maybe we just need to slow down and take one or two of those truths out of our dilapidated Bibles and start aiming them at our hearts, maybe even the enemy with greater intentionality. That's what we find in Lamentations chapter 3, a man in the midst of soul war, pulling the blade of truth from its sheath, namely Exodus chapter 34 verse 6, and aiming it at his heart in a moment of hopelessness, in a moment of great anxiety, in a moment of grief. When the... Think about it this way, when the author of Lamentations went through the sermon series with his church on the book of Exodus, he wasn't just after more biblical knowledge. He knew that he might just need some of the truth found therein on a rainy day. And so he tucked it away in his arsenal, he added it to his arsenal, and we see him wielding it in the heart of battle as he records in his journal the words of Lamentations chapter 3. Just like Jesus wielded the truth found in the book of Deuteronomy in the midst of a battle with the devil of hell himself. Here's a good example for us. Um, If you were around this time last year, we went through a series on the book of Jonah, a four-week run through that book of the Bible. You know that when we went through that series, the goal of that series was not simply that you would learn more about God, yourself, and the world by way of the story of a stubborn man and a giant fish, right? Right? The goal of that series is that you would wield the truth therein as you fight the good fight of faith. That you would take the truth found in that book of the Bible and put it in your arsenal. In other words, it's one thing to believe that God commands great creatures of the deep, i.e. the giant fish in that story. It's an altogether different thing like the author of Lamentations to recall the truth that your God commands great creatures of the deep when it feels like your life is coming unraveled at the seams. That's very different to cause your heart to return to the truth using the language of Lamentations 3, that God is in control of your life when it sure sure doesn't feel like he's in control of your life. In any given moment, you and I, we're going to believe something. We're going to preach something to ourselves. We can't help ourselves. We have this weird way of conversing with ourselves. I've shared this quote with you before. Paul Tripp in his book, Dangerous Calling, says this, no one is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you do. And oftentimes, it's all those things we've talked about for the past two weeks that tend to dominate the narrative, is it not? We lend our ears to anti-gospels motivated by fear, shame, doubt, bitterness, panic, pride, distrust, and the list of culprits just goes on and on and on. Martin Lloyd-Jones, 20th century pastor and scholar, argued that we need to grab ourselves by the proverbial collar daily, hourly, sometimes even by the minute, and say, listen up, self. This is what you need to believe about God right now in this moment, self. This is the promise of God that finds its yes in Jesus Christ that your heart needs to grab hold of in this moment, self. This is the facet of the gospel that's meant to shine in this moment, Uh, On the battlefield, self. That's what you see in Lamentations chapter 3. A man grabbing himself by the proverbial collar and saying, soul, this is what you need to soak in right now in this moment. That's what we mean when we use the language of preaching the gospel to yourself. That's what we mean when we talk about breathing the air of the gospel in the midst of the everyday. It's this idea of fighting to believe moment by moment. You can't compartmentalize that. Coming back to the idea of a dilapidated Bible, I really do want every Bible that represents this church to be dilapidated, honestly. I want it to be falling apart at the seams because you're in it more than any other book or resource that you own. Because the scriptures are the content for preaching the gospel to yourself. I want you to be a student of the word. But I also want you to not stop there. I want you to wield the truth found in that dilapidated Bible in those moments when you need to believe it most. And for us to fight together alongside one another as we'll get to momentarily. Let me come back to a couple of personal examples that I've shared the past couple of weeks and try to make sense of this on the ground. I mentioned over the past two weeks that a recurring theme for me is this, this struggle with a rude idol of approval, this desire to be thought well of by others, and it rears its ugly head in surface level manifestations that are different depending on what season of life I'm in. And so as a seminary student, it it was this uh, deep discontentment with making anything less than a 100 on every exam and paper. Because if I'm honest with you, I really wanted the professors to think well of me. To think, man, he's the best student in this entire class that we have. Um, And then I moved into a season of church planting assessment. And now all of a sudden, it it matters deeply what these fellow church planting men of God think of me. and, And so I'm spending unhealthy amounts of time filling out theological and pastoral questionnaires. And now present present tense, it rears its ugly head in the form of sermon prep because whatever I say from this stage is going to determine what many of you think about me. And if I'm honest, when I'm not looking at Jesus, that matters a lot to me. And so I mentioned last week that the way the gospel is meant to shine in my life is this booming declaration that I'm God's beloved child with whom he's well pleased. Not because I pleased him, but because Jesus has on my behalf, I'm perfectly accepted in Christ. And what that means is that the greatest sermon in the world cannot enhance my identity and the worst sermon in the world cannot condemn me. Now, here's where this week's message comes to bear with this example. I can know that I'm approved of in Christ at a cognitive level and yet never preach that truth to myself uh, in the midst of those moments of soul war. It's not enough to be theologically articulate. It's not enough to, to have this This pithy saying that that sits on paper that sounds really good that I'm declaring to you right now. I need to slow down sometimes in the middle of prepping a sermon. In the middle of the week, grab myself by the proverbial collar and declare this sermon cannot make you a somebody, nor can it make you a nobody. Your identity is one of perfect approval in Jesus Christ. Now go work on that sermon, self At times, I need to have that moment of gospel self-declaration prior to the service on Sunday so that I can step onto the stage preaching from a position of acceptance in Christ rather than the pursuit of it. And so, in God's kindness, um, as an addition to my arsenal, there's this book, a book of old Puritan prayers called The Valley of Vision. And, And there's a prayer that oftentimes, before this service begins on Sunday morning, that I pray and it's, it's part of the declarative effort to wage war in the midst of the battle for my own soul. And it includes things like this. My master God, I am desired to preach today, but go weak and needy to my task. Yet I long that people might be edified with divine truth That an honest testimony might be born for thee. Give me assistance in preaching and prayer with heart uplifted for grace and unction. It goes on to say, keep me conscious all the while of my defects and let me not gloat in pride over my performance. Continues on, I myself need thy support, comfort, strength, holiness that I might be a pure channel of thy grace and be able to do something for thee. Some, some beautiful truths rooted in biblical principles and truth that are here for the taking for me if I'm willing to grab hold of this addition to my arsenal and actually wield it in the moment when I need it most. Another example that I've given, on the surface, if you were to observe my life, you might see a man who checks his bank account a little too often, a man who Uh, updates his quasi Dave Ramsey envelope system a little too incessantly at times. A man who panics when the the next expenditure that was unexpected hits. And I mentioned a couple weeks ago that, that what's really going on there, if I'm honest, is that what's oftentimes most important to me is security, it's control. And I believe money can provide it as a functional savior when I'm not looking at Jesus. And so I said last week, the gospel declares that the thought that I'm ultimately in control is delusional. Acknowledging that Jesus is ultimately in control is an exercise in insanity for me. Not only is God in control of my story, but He's good. The cross of Jesus Christ proves that God cares for me. He's got me in the palm of His hand. If I lose everything, I gain Christ. He is my ultimate security. I mentioned that last week. That's the the way the gospel is meant to shine in my life in those moments. Now, here's where this week's message comes to bear in in this example. I, I know theologically that God is ultimately in control, that he's seated on the throne and that he cares for me. I can articulate that truth all day long. I know that if I lose everything, but I gain Christ, I'm the richest man in all the world. I know these things to be true at a cognitive level. But just because I know it theologically doesn't mean that I believed it when we went car shopping over the last two weeks because my car decided to die on us. And so let me just invite you into that. There are some moments that that I experienced uh, great success, some moments that in in the midst of going through that experience of, of grabbing hold of an expenditure that was unexpected, that I found myself stopping to believe this truth in the moment. But there are plenty of times that I didn't. And you can go talk to my wife about that. There are times that I got short, harsh, abrasive. Um, there, there was even one day that we went to a couple of car lots and we began the day in the car praying. God, would you, dot, 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 provide for us, protect us, guard our hearts. We, we prayed over it beforehand, and then we stepped onto the lot, and my heart started to do that thing, that anti-gospel thing, and I did not wield the truth in the moment. Because I thought, well, I prayed for it beforehand. Before I stepped onto the battlefield, I, I prayed that you would protect me. You see how silly that sounds when you actually take that war metaphor? It's like a soldier praying that God would protect them on the battlefield and then stepping on and just leaving the sword at your side. It's crazy. I succeed at times. I fail at times. I'm a work in progress, but I want to live this out more and more because I see the beauty of it as as I continue to live and breathe this air more and more in my life, wielding the arsenal of truth that God's given me in those moments when the fight is real. And here's the beauty of the world in which we live. God has given us a a number of ways uh, to arm ourselves in order that we might preach the truth to our own hearts in those moments. Maybe it is like the author of Lamentations, um, a, a particular passage of scripture. Going back to last week, all those verses that we plowed our way through in last week's sermon are meant to be wielded on the battlefield. Even if you have to write it on a postcard and and stick it to your bathroom mirror or put it in your dashboard. I'll be honest with you. As a a skeptic of the church growing up, I used to make fun of those people. And now I see what a fool I was. Because those people were actually wielding the truth in the midst of the war for their own souls. Whatever it takes to find yourself uh, not unarmed in the midst of soul war. Or maybe it's a particular song that reorients your heart. One of my favorite lyrical weapons of choice, we sing this often on Sundays, these words. I work my fingers down to the bone. Nothing I did could ever atone. But Jesus, you paid my debt. You know why that one matters to me? Because pride is deep within my heart. Self-righteousness. This, this idea that it really is about Jesus a little bit and then I add to his work on the cross to earn God's favor. When I'm not believing the gospel, that's where my heart goes. And so that line matters deeply to me. Or how about one that we don't sing on Sunday mornings? Nathan and James, a.k.a. Farewell Teddy, wrote a song entitled Huxley Party of One, which includes the following lyrics. It says something to this effect. Stolen water sweet, come eat your bread in secret, baby. Stolen water sweet. Come eat your bread and keep it. Straight out of Proverbs chapter 9, Lady Folly inviting you into your your house. If you were around for the Proverbs series, if you've ever read the book of Proverbs, you have these two houses, Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly. Both are inviting you in, and and the outcomes are very different. If you you read uh, Proverbs chapter 9... What you see are these words. It says, stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. That that song is a great weapon to be wielded in the face of temptation. I sing those lines often. I don't know what it is. I love Proverbs 9, but for some reason, when it's intertwined into this lyrical, melodic form, it speaks to my heart very differently. And so God uses that song in a unique way in my life in the midst of soul war in moments of real temptation when I just hear Lady Folly saying, come on in, come on in, there's not death here. What about books? There's some books that have stuck with me in such a way that they actually have become part of my, my arsenal by God's grace. And, and I'm not just talking about books found on the shelf of the local Christian bookstore. Um, one of my favorite books, C.S. Lewis's book, Paralandra, it's a part of his Space Trilogy, which sounds super nerdy. It kind of is. Um, but it's a fantastic read. And the, the premise of the book is uh, you have this main character, Dr. Elwin Ransom, uh, who goes to uh, another world, another planet. And, and the idea is that this planet is in its pre-fall state, pre-Genesis 3, in an, in an Eden-like form. And so he steps into this world, and everything is as it would have been before sin entered our world. And as he's exploring the lay of the land, he comes upon a tree, and there's, there's fruit hanging from this tree. And so he grabs a piece of fruit, and he takes a bite from it, and he describes it as a pure ecstasy, something like he's never experienced in the world as we know it, such that uh, it would have made all the sense in the world for him to grab a second piece of that fruit and enjoy it all over again. And, and this is what this is what it says uh, as, as you go on to read in this scene. Lewis says this, His reason, or what we commonly take to be reason in our own world, was all in favor of tasting this miracle again. The childlike innocence of fruit, the labors he had undergone, the uncertainty of the future, all seemed to commend the action. Yet something seemed opposed to this quote-unquote reason. It is difficult to suppose that this opposition came from desire, for what desire would turn from so much deliciousness? But for whatever cause, it appeared to him better not to taste again. Perhaps the experience had been so complete that repetition would be a vulgarity. Like asking to hear the same symphony twice in a day. Honest to goodness, I'm not making this up. That scene has come to my mind when staring a 16-ounce ribeye in the face. I'm not joking. And it's caused me to stop at 8 ounces before, rather than eating the whole thing. (laughs) To experience the greater joy of moderation, rather than the misery of gluttony. Which is rooted in a biblical principle, is it not? It's biblical truth that's that's taken and, and written in an artistic way, that for some reason, God has allowed that to stick with me, and I wield it. In the midst of war for my own soul, do I do it perfectly every time? No, there are plenty of times that the scene has not come to mind and I've eaten the whole 16 ounces and been miserable for it and had to confess my sin and repent to the Lord. Do you see the beauty of what God's given us? Podcasts, blog posts, favorite sermons, creeds, prayers, and on and on we could go. Whatever it looks like for you to arm yourself with truth and actually wield that truth in the midst of the battle. The Christian life is, is one uh, in which the promises of God that find their yes in Jesus are meant to matter in the midst of the everyday. Not just when we gather on Sundays and then maybe in someone's home for a couple hours, which we call a community group around here. And not just in a reactive sense either, not just when things get hard, but even proactively um, arming our hearts with an arsenal of truth because we know who we are. There's no reason that I should wait for that ugly approval idol to rear its ugly head every time before I grab the truth and wield it. Because I know that's a recurring issue for me in the fight for sanctification, I should be arming myself proactively with truth that speaks into that and daily Soaking in that truth so that the reactive moments actually become less and less over the course of time. And so here's the million dollar question, I think. Why is it that we don't live this out? Why is it that we've settled for, many of us, a compartmentalized Christianity that only matters in certain parts of our lives, certain time slots on our calendar? Why? Why Why, do, why is it that we struggle to... Breathe the air of the gospel in the midst of the every day, going back to the language we've been using from day one of this series. And there are a lot of answers to that question, I think. We don't have time to unpack all of them because we've used the war metaphor this morning a number of times. Let me throw out a few possibilities using that metaphor. Perhaps we don't see the war for what it is. Maybe we, we really don't believe there's that much at stake. Maybe we don't believe that not breathing the air of the gospel in the midst of the everyday is a detriment to our very lives. I mean, sure, when things get really bad, when we look down and see that we're bleeding out, you know, in those moments when everything's falling apart at the seams, yes and amen. But but most of us, if we're honest, we don't normally think that way about our lives. We don't think that we're truly in the midst of a war. We don't have eyes to see just how much better it could be if we would live and breathe the air of the gospel in our lives more rhythmically. Or perhaps for some it's this. Perhaps we don't believe that God has given us a sufficient weapon. We don't believe that his word is the sharpened blade that he declares it to be. I think that's one that we, many of us have to wrestle with. Do you believe Ephesians 6 when God says his word is the sword of the spirit? Or, or do you believe that he's really giving you a butter knife? Because if he's lying about Ephesians 6, I don't know that we can trust any of his word. What do you believe about the Bible? Do you believe it's powerless to help you in your time of need? Do you believe that God knew what he was doing when he provided divine revelation to us in the form of the scriptures? Perhaps for some of us, it's that we're not armed adequately, going back to the issue of biblical illiteracy. if We don't arm ourselves with divine revelation. We're left with nothing more than our own speculation. This call to action is impossible if we're not committed to being students of the word, to adding to our arsenal consistently as we move forward through this life. And lastly, and again, this list is not comprehensive, but maybe it's that we're, we are armed, but not dangerous. In other words, we have an arsenal of truth, we just never use it when the bullets are flying. This comes back to the idea of, of being biblically literate, but never aiming those truths at our hearts in those moments of real soul war. Like a soldier has his, his weapon in hand, steps onto the battlefield, and keeps it by his side. Never wants lift, lifting it to actually fight. Like the author of Lamentations, we, we must actually wield the weapon of truth that we have at our disposal in the midst of the battle. I love the final verse of this morning's passage. After grabbing himself by the proverbial collar and declaring to himself the glorious gifts of the steadfast love and mercy and faithfulness of the Lord, this man now declares that it's the Lord himself who is the ultimate gift. Look at verse 24. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. That word portion can also be translated as possession, God is my possession. God is my treasure. God is my gain. I've said this before. The gospel is not that we get God to give us what we really want, which is not God at all. Rather, the gospel is that we get God. This whole idea of fighting the good fight of faith, everything that this series has been about, warring to believe in the midst of the battle, the reason it's worth fighting is because the spoils of war is God. You gain God. He is our prize. He is our treasure. He is our beloved possession. As we close out this series, my hope is that as you process through this stuff, you begin to see a couple of things, a couple of outworkings. One, the idea of living as a missionary, as a Christian, evangelistically, begins to look very different, does it not? All of a sudden, if you're living and breathing the air of the gospel and someone asks you, To share the gospel with them. Or present you with an opportunity to do so. No longer is it simply. When I was 15. I received Jesus at a summer camp. That's part of your story. But it's also. Monday. The gospel saved my marriage. Because I could have not believed in the moment. But I stopped and grabbed myself by the proverbial collar. In the midst of a brutal fight with my spouse. And had a Lamentations 3 kind of moment. All of a sudden, someone's train wrecked marriage sitting on the other side of a cup of coffee is listening a little more intently because the gospel has real power in your life. It's not just this long ago story that you're telling anymore. It's this story that that has um, real outworkings in the midst of, of moments prior to the conversation because you're living and breathing it like air. You also begin to see how deeply we really do need community. There's no way that this series, everything that we're talking about, this framework of thinking about the gospel was meant to be lived in isolation. Because if we're honest, there are times that we just don't wanna fight, right? That would be another one of the reasons. The the fight's just not there. And so we need other people who will come alongside of us like a wounded soldier on the battlefield and just hold us up and, and fight with us and for us. There there are moments using that war metaphor that we can't see certain bullets flying in our direction. They're called blind spots for a reason. And so we deeply need the family of God. That's why all those one another statements are there in the scriptures. We're not meant to do this alone. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us find further resources and directions to our gatherings that's c-r-o-s-s-p-o-i-n-t-e-p-t-c-dot-com